Hey folks, you're listening to Scribbles and Spells, the podcast where creatives of all kinds expand on their art and spill their secrets. I'm your host, C.E. Hoffman, an author, poet, and screenwriter living with mental illness. You can find my books at cehoffman.net and follow me on Twitter at cehoffman2. I'm super excited to introduce today's guest. Alexandrin Agundimu is an author and the editor-in-chief of Filth Magazine. She received her MFA at NYU and her debut novel, The Longest Summer, is forthcoming from Clash Books. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at cross underscore radical. Alexandra, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you, and I'm so excited to talk about your book with you today. As I probably mentioned already, Clash Books is a dream press of mine, and I'm a fan of your work, of course. So (laughs) when you sent me that arc, it was definitely a fan moment for me. So tell us. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, it was like, I don't know if you remember, but when you sent me the arc, I was like, okay, cool. Thanks. I'm going to, I'll get to this, you know, maybe in a month or so, and then I'll get you the template. And then I like sent you a template, I think the next day. I think you did. Yeah. (laughs) because I read it all in one night I just you know opened up the pdf and I I feel like it was on a full moon and I just I just went with it I went with the moon energy and the narrative energy and it was like this beautiful perfect storm so very excited (laughs) to discuss this actually I have a question before we even super dive in because for me there was this like beautiful fury you know, in it. And it was a flurry as well, you know, and was that what the writing process was like for you? Did it just all kind of smash through you all at once? Or was this more of kind of a laborious intention? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, So there was, it started life as a MFA thesis. So at first, well, actually, no, it started life as a, um, a hypothetical novel when I was working for, I was working on it for a class in my um, bachelor's degree. And um, when the time came for me to do a project in my master's program, I was like, oh yeah, sure. I'll just dust this off and and play with it and see what I can get out of it. And um, so the first draft was, um, went slowly. It took me about a year. It took me an academic year to finish it. And it went slowly until uh, it was like a couple days before my birthday. The semester was over and I um, stayed up all night and I wrote into my birthday. So I like wrote for like probably not 24 hours, but probably like 18 hours or something like that. And um, finished the last like third of the book in that time um, or quarter of the book in that time. So uh, some of the stuff, if it feels like a bit of a, a rush like that, um, it was because of the first draft started slow, got really fast, and then it was a very long, laborious editing process. So um, it's it's a weird combination of energies that I think comes together really well, um, but it's not. it was not as much of an um, intuitive process as some of my other work has been. 
I love that. So you kind of started with a marathon, had this bursting sprint to the first finish line, which we all know is actually just the beginning of the the real race, as you (laughs) intimated, which was the editing process. Was that editing process primarily an individual experience or are you also alluding to the editing work you did with Clash Books? Oh, um, so the initial edit was guided by um, David Lipsky at NYU. And we went over the first about third of the book, um, got some ideas for like where it could go from there. And then there was a big rewrite and sent it out, didn't get any responses. Another big rewrite. Um, I think there were like two or three really big rewrites. And when I say a big rewrite, I mean like characters got changed, plot stuff moved around um, to the point where I like edited, touched, retouched, and just straight up rewrote, added chapters. Everything except for like the last paragraph has been fucked with in some way. Um, and then when I got to dealing with, like when I got to with clash, um, they didn't, they had some, so, so it was a little bit of a mixed bag because there was like some of the stuff that they wanted to do was kind of extensive and some of the stuff they wanted to do was significantly less extensive and was more structural, um, more like just like cleaning things up and we wound up not going with the extensive changes, but we did do the other stuff. So the editing process with clash has been quick. And the reason why it's been quick is because I've lived with this text for so long to the point where now when I want to like do it, when I have to do an edit, like me copy editing, like I did the copy editing in like an hour. Like this is like, it it was really fast to go through the edits with Clash because like I know this thing back to front and I know what's going to work and what isn't going to work. And I can just kind of like pick it up and, and get it where it needs to be. So you know, that's the thing is the fact that like when you're doing your first book, I, I think that like uh, something I, I have found is that a lot of the editing happens before you reach your publisher and then you know you, you and then further editing happens but like getting it to the point where it's like you could potentially put it on a shelf is really important absolutely i think sometimes we oversimplify the process and the journey from that first beautifully mangled draft to the actual, this can go on the shelf. And even then I feel like there's still, there's still tears of that as well, where it's like, yeah, this can, you know, go do the indie publisher thing, you know, or, you know, a more small, but still like prestigious press, you know, like clash books, you know, or, you know, like, okay, this is ready for like Walmart dissemination. (laughs) You know, that's like a very different tier, not necessarily one to which I myself aspire, but there's so much nuance in the entire process. It's like in editing, you have to be aware of exactly where you want your book to be long as well. Right. Well, and let me, let me just say that I don't know if it's necessarily a tier. It's more of a constellation. Um, because, yeah, like, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like the Walmart book isn't necessarily cleaner or better or more well put together. It's just aesthetically different from the book that Clash is going to put out. You know what I mean? So like, if you want to, get a if you want to compete with Danielle Steele or someone or um you know if you want to do like a Michael Crichton kind of thing that's one kind of writing and then and one kind of editing and then if you wanted to push it in the direction of you know Dennis Cooper that's a whole other kind of editing that you would want to do so you have to kind of be aware of what you're of your audience 
and what suits the book best and what you know what kind of people you you fuck with um you know this one honestly i was aiming for a small print run on a major press and uh as time went on i realized that it wanted to live more as an indie book so you know that's where i wound up Absolutely. And I think that's why it's so important to find the right publisher, a publisher that's truly aligned with your vision. And it sounds like your experience with Clash definitely affirms that, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so far it's been great. That's great. You know, you mentioned uh, that the overall process for writing this was a little less, I think you said, intuitive than other pieces that you've done. Does that mean that this is probably the project that you have edited and rewritten the most? Yes, um, definitely. I, I've gone through, I think, between title changes, you know, there's at least 20 drafts of this thing on my Google Drive, probably more. Um, some of those drafts are incomplete and some of those were i mean i i went through like tense changes like putting it in the, the the past tense um i went through the plot was totally different the first time i wrote it like there was there basically was no plot um the plot changed the relationships changed people fell in love people um you know developed addictions that they didn't have in the first draft and like it was it was a whole thing um I even did some edits based on, I had a, some people who have followed me on Twitter might know, but there was this, I'm not going to say who it was, but there was this um, potential publisher who basically was launching a press and wanted to launch with my book and had like a pretty big name attached to it. Um, And that didn't pan out, but that gave me the title, like edit working with that person um, gave me the title and also gave me um, some what I think is a pretty significant change, uh, two really significant changes, uh, both throughout the book and to the ending um, that I think make it like hang together a lot better. So I'm really grateful for that as well. So like it's been through, you know, not just it's it's not just been through different edits. It's been through different editors, you know, and it's like it's really, this is like a book with like a lot of history um, attached to it, which is not how no other ones have been. Yeah, definitely. I mean, cause you mentioned first coming up with the concept while working on your BA and then it carrying through with you into the MFA. And Mm -hmm. I love that about books, you know, that are kind of early conceived for us as artists, because they kind of grow up alongside of us. And then as a result, yeah, usually end up somewhere we didn't necessarily expect for them. Yeah, very astute. That's, uh, that's very true. Um, It's an uncomfortable process, but growth is uncomfortable. So absolutely and again this book has grown so much and the characters all grow in their own ways as well as regress and I like that you know I like that it's not just plain and linear and of course this book is far from shy it's a bit of a a silly question but I do really want to ask it if (laughs) if the longest summer was a person how would you describe them oh um Cara Delavinge. 
Um, I don't know. Um, that's who I think of. I, I, I would describe them as a unconventionally uh, or conventionally unconventionally attractive <laughs> person with a lot of grime um, and a lot of opinions and a lot of um, like the kinds of flaws that make someone beautiful. I know that seems like very self-aggrandizing, but I, I think that like a lot of the things I did that were mistakes or were unconventional or whatever, like I think that they all contribute to making it really like making, I think that's the reason why it's any good at all. Because if not, I think it would just be this kind of overly polished generic MFA <laughs> thesis that probably never would have found a publisher. Yeah, exactly. I think it's only when we dare that we truly can uncover our voice again yeah. in this long, beautiful, circuitous process that you've so wonderfully described. I mean, it's it's true. There's a lot of dark elements in this book based on your own experiences, as you've mentioned, with racism and queerphobia, mental illness, abuse. Was writing this a catharsis for these issues? Yes, absolutely. Um, especially in that first draft, there was a lot of it was like, um, the first draft was much more, it was never, this was never what you would call autofiction, but it was much closer to being autobiographical than it wound up being. Um, to the point where now when I read it, I'm like, oh, I don't recognize, like, I don't recognize any of these people up to and including the narrator um, as being someone that I knew in, in, in life. Like it's not, they're unrecognizable. Like almost everyone is unrecognizable. Um, but you know, a lot of it was drawing from my own, the, the feelings, if not the actual situations, you know, I wouldn't necessarily draw from like, Oh, this thing happened to me. It has to go in the book. It was more like, Oh, this thing happened to me. It made me feel this way. This feeling has to go in the book. And that was what a lot of it was like a lot, a lot of it is like, I haven't been through this in this exact way, but I have felt this exact way. And that's, so it's, it's extremely personal and extremely realistic and extremely close to my own experience, but just not in a, this happened to me way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love that. I think it's some really powerful alchemy. And I was excited to ask you as well, where you draw the line between autobiography and fiction. So you've kind of preemptively answered that already. And I love that you're, you're recognizing the archetypal significance of the emotional experience, and how that's really what should inform us ultimately as writers, because that's what any reader can then tap into. Yes. Um, Yes, I think it's more important to get the feelings than it is to get the to get the emotions and to get the the sensation than it is to get the the de the, like the those uh huh, the details right mm -hmm. in the sense that like the details of this happened and then this happened and then this happened because it's fiction, right? Like there's a cause and effect. It's going to be and this happened because this happened, but then this happened. So we're gonna all you're already dealing with a kind of clockwork 
machine that is not how life works mm-hmm. um unless you want to write something that's like uber realistic which i have done and you want to like kind of abandon some of the the clockwork mechanisms but there's still going to be some of that um as far as like drawing the line between like autobiography and fiction you know i didn't i've never i've written one thing that i would consider to be like almost autobiography um but most of what i've written i would consider to be fiction um because there's still that clockwork element and there's definitely like time dilation time effects um experiences like even when i would say like okay i did this thing or i owned this object or i knew this person and i'm going to add detail that makes it so that this object or this person becomes very real and it's very similar to this to this real thing that i have it's still one different because it's writing it's 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 fiction and two i'm probably going to intentionally change my relationship to it or not my relationship to it but i'm going to intentionally change the relationship of the subject um in order to make the sensation more effective that's something that lipsky taught me was like it it doesn't have to be how it happened it has to be how it felt like it was happening and that's what makes it that's what makes for good fiction and you which you already said um which means that even something that you know might be more real quote unquote is still going to be very unreal in a lot of ways um i don't particularly believe in straight autobiography i don't know that there is such a thing as straight autobiography mm-hmm. um i think that's why i prefer the term autofiction um i'm suspicious of anyone who who said oh this is my autobiography very suspicious of that as autobiography so that's how i see it well yeah absolutely because it's already you know tainted by perspective and time and memory deficiencies and just stylistic choices in narrative to which every writer must adhere, whether consciously or subconsciously, like you were saying. Right. Absolutely true. Um, I don't know if it's, I would disagree that it's necessarily a taint and more of a, that was a harsh word. I was thinking that even as I was saying it. (laughs) Um, It's an alteration, you know, it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a lot of things. Um, positive and negative. Yeah, I mean, like you said, though, I think it's those alterations within the narrative spirit, basically on set by Muse, that makes art so powerful to begin with. Like you said, as long as you attach to the feeling, and if possible, even augment that feeling, that's how art becomes meta-truth. That's, yes, that's way smarter way to say it than i would have said it <laughs> that's a that's yeah okay um you're a little bit at past me there um but yes i agree um i think that's all i can say to that is the fact that i agree that like yeah i mean meta truth is such a great word um you know it, it's like such a yeah it's it's you know it's it's realer than real i think quentin tarantino said that like his universe is the realer than real averse um and it's like that's kind of how i see it is that like this is the beauty of of art is that um you not even the beauty the utility of art is that it allows you to allows the the viewer to experience things 
that historic history doesn't allow us to experience. So it's the difference between art and history. Um, that's why I think it's like very valuable to have things like museums and old books and all that kind of stuff. It, it allows us to know things that we would not otherwise know um, just from reading, you know, the difference between, uh, let me just say this, the difference between like the atomic bomb falling, like I've never experienced an atomic bomb falling. I read that an atomic bomb fell twice in the his on a, on a civilian population twice in the history of the world. I don't know what that's like, but I have seen Akira and I have seen Evangelion and I have um, like read people's descriptions of it that are somewhat lyrical. And because of that, I have a closer understanding to the horror of what that was than I would if I just read in a history book in 194 I can't remember 1947 or whatever or 19 you know like uh, the bombs fell in Hiroshima and Nagasaki like that is not like that's not as effective as that first shot in Akira of the explosion of over Tokyo like that's a practical example of it I would say yeah and an important example I would definitely Agree, because you're right. It's like bringing narrative, bringing story, whether it be you know visual or literary. It it brings back the human element and the human experience to things that, like you say, can just be become stagnate. You know, by way of facts. You know, just dry, bony, icky facts. And <laughs> and and you mentioned too something not only about evoking emotion but also evoking sensation and I like that because I'm a both a pretty emotive and sensual person and there's a lot of sensual experience and imagery in the book as well did you want this book to be a bodily experience as much as an emotional one yes actually that's yes um I'm glad that you mentioned that um you know, a lot of it for me was, especially considering it was my first book and it was the first time I had done any of this, a lot of it was like wanting to capture the feel, capture like the feeling of a location and the feeling, not in the sense of like just the emotions that that, 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 um, and that location evokes, but the emotions through the fact that the air conditioners can be heard um, outside in the bar <laughs> and the bar smells like cigarettes and beer and there's a fight happening and there's bodies like male bodies there present and it's a very male space and it's night and like it's dark but it's illuminated and like the orange, like I mentioned the orange lights a lot. Like I'm doing that because like it's the color matters, you know, because I don't want the reader to just see it's nighttime. I want the reader to see it is nighttime illuminated by orange light. And I, I think that that's such a different experience. It's a vibe. Like it's it's a whole other thing um, that's very specific, you know, versus like if I was writing about New York in my contemporary experiences in New York, like right now, 
the LED streetlights would be a huge part of it because mm-hmm. for the same reason, because they, the shadows they cast are different. They're digital. They're not analog. Like it's a totally different thing. If they're not soft, they're very sharp. Um, and it's, it's kind of dehumanizing in a way, in a way that like the, the orange lights are like, make it very, um, uh, un, not unreal, uh, hyper real in a way. Mm-hmm. um dreamlike and you know so that's just one example uh, there's so many different things so many different things <laughs> examples of embodiment um you know the 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 just the 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 substances um the use of of alcohol and drugs the 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 dreamy quality of a hangover like all of this stuff is like it's so important to me um, and the sights and the fact that like this, this character, this narrator is a very visual person and is in my view, very male and very like experiences sexuality in this very male way where it's like, oh, so much of it is like seen, but then there's this undercurrent underneath of queerness. That's like, you know, queers, I, I think love a little differently, um, And like, there's that aspect to it. So it's like, it's all these, it's like layer after layer after layer of stuff um, that I really, yeah, I was like bodily. Yeah. Like I want this to be an all five senses experience, like as much as can be done through the page. I love that so much because it's something, you know, it was something that was intended and then it's something that I received as a reader. Mm -hmm. So that's always fucking awesome transference there. And I feel like what we're really talking about could be encapsulated with the term mood, right? We're talking about emotion. We're talking about vibe, the sensual, the the visual, the intellectual aspects, the social aspects. And, and that's so, you know, such a huge component of mise-en-scene, you know, with filmmaking. So now I'm wondering, are you like me also interested in film? Have you written screenplays? Are you interested in adapting the longest summer into a screenplay? Oh, that's a business <laughs> question. Um, yeah, I mean, if the opportunity arose and someone commissioned a screenplay based on this book, absolutely. absolutely. Um, I have a tendency to, I'm not a film expert by any means. I'm a film fan. <laughs> um, I, do not write screenplays. I would like to learn to write screenplays. Um, I do conceptualize. I know something's good when I can see it as a movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's not there yet until I'm making trailers for it in my head. Like mm-hmm. that's when I know if it's a movie or like the thing that I'm currently thinking about trying to work on is like an eight episode TV series in my head even though it's going to be a novel and it's going to be, there's going to be, it's going to be so like this time I want it to be so textual that there's no way it could ever be adapted probably. But in my mind, it's an eight episode TV series and it makes perfect sense, you know? So like that's my relationship to film because I was raised on television and film. So for me, like the longest summer has always been in my head, a movie, but it's a book. Like it's a, it's both at the same time for me. Like it's totally a film. Um, I have like a soundtrack on my Spotify that like has an opening and a closing song. Like I have a credit song. Like um, 
I have the whole nine yards. Like that's part of the reason why there's so much about music in there is because the music is what would be scoring the scenes um, of this film. Like, yeah, it's, it's such a huge thing for me. Um, and I do quite enjoy movies and film a lot. Um, I'm a, I'm not a snob, but I, take them somewhat seriously and I don't have a lot of patience for crappy films. Um, I don't have a lot of patience for super mainstream stuff. I kind of start with the middle brow and go from there. Um, you know, I'm an A24 girl, uh, but like, I, I don't necessarily, um, yeah, that's my relationship to film. I can say more, but like, that's the, that's my relationship to film in this, and this piece. Well, I don't know if this defines me as a movie snob, but if a movie has failed to invoke any real meaning for me within the first five or ten minutes, I am known to shut it off. <laughs> You're smarter than I am. <laughs> like you said, though, it's that impatience where I'm just like, because to me, I too, you know, really revere film. I, I love that you just described yourself as a film fan because that's me all over. And I consider it in so many ways kind of almost like the apotheosis of art because you're taking literary and sensual and visual and musical elements and you're combining it and it's just a feast, you know, like mm -hmm. emotionally and otherwise. So if you're not, and sometimes some films just come off so cardboardy, you know, they're just there. They're just actors reciting dialogue and it's not hitting me. And that's just a personal thing. I dig that. Mm -hmm. But even then I'm just like, this is a waste of my freaking time. I'm just going to go read a historical biography <laughs> instead. Right. Kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. I have but, a, Oh yeah, please go ahead. No, I was going to say just real quick. Like I have a huge problem with the, um, for lack of a better term, massive action genre, mostly, mm -hmm mostly typified by the Transformers movies and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Huge problem with those. They leave me cold so often um, just because of like a lack of quality and uh, a very shallow sentimentality um, where the characters are very, um, are emoting very hard and the emotions are skin deep. Yes. Um, and it, it's not a problem of the medium because I've seen comics and cartoons that do that work so much better. And I've read superhero comics that do that work so much better. So there's really no excuse as far as I'm concerned in that genre for it to be as bad as it is. I think it's really just um, a lack of willingness to invest in the work that needs to be done to make it good that we and i'm gonna get on a soapbox here i don't think it was as big of a problem in the 80s and i don't think it was as big of a problem in the 90s when we had the blockbuster era because i've seen star wars the original star wars trilogy i've seen die hard i've seen predator i've seen you know uh the matrix big fan of all of those movies and they are they are films they are the same level of uh, grit and desire and um, sensuality and emotional depth that you would get from any art house movie, from any David Lynch or 
uh, Sofia Coppola or Gaspar Noe, like, I think that they stand, like, I think RoboCop might be the best movie ever made. Um, and it's just about a guy who's a robot, who's also a cop. And it's brilliant. I think it's an absolutely brilliant film, but like, you know, that's, I, I think it's a shame that we don't get more of that um, anymore. So that's me and my my little movie soapbox. I loved your movie soapbox. I would encourage you to stay on it because I'm in agreement. And for me, being you know super idealistic, I recognize that it is my lived perspective. But for me, what cinches it if that's the proper word i don't think that it is actually but that's okay <laughs> clinches it i think people use them interchangeably but probably only one is right i'm, I'm unsure as to which one is correct right i think it's one of those things where it's one of those words that's starting to evolve like how nickname used to be an nickname and people just started to you know <laughs> mush it all together but in any event i think the real crux of it for me is if a movie has a message and all of those movies that you just mentioned, to me, they did have an intention. They did have a message. They did have some kind of point they were trying to make about a certain striving or a certain element of human nature. So it has meat under all of the shiny, pretty people. You know, there's mm-hmm. something in there. Yeah. 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 I think the last movie that really did it, that was that I would call a big blockbuster action movie, probably The Dark Knight. Um, Mm -hmm. haven't really seen maybe the dark Knight rises. I don't know. I think that that tried, um, haven't really seen since that time period that like mid aughts, um, when the MCU took over, haven't really seen like a top tier action movie. I've seen people claim that black Panther did it. I don't think it did. Um, I've seen people claim that like Avengers did it. I don't think any of the Avengers movies hit that mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that like, so I, yeah, so I, I think that it's like, it's a real shame. Um, people sometimes, I think there were attempts. I think that that star Wars movie, the last Jedi that came out was an attempt, um, that failed miserably <laughs> or maybe failed spectacularly. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that like, I've, I'm kind of cold to, you know, I haven't really watched a Marvel movie in a while. I haven't watched a Star Wars movie or a Star Wars TV show in a while. Um, I have not gone to the cinema to watch them, that's for sure. Um, I used to make a point of going to movie theaters to watch those kinds of things because I was like, you know, I want the big screen experience. And then eventually it became overstimulating. And I'm a person who loves to be overstimulated and it became too much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm, I much prefer um, to watch. Yeah, I, I much nowadays. I if I'm watching a new movie, it's probably something like Zola or like a, I don't know. It's probably it's something something much more buttoned down and a lot simpler. Honestly, yeah, I kind of wish there was a movie night in our future because I feel like we would enjoy <laughs> exchanging film titles between each other. True. Yeah. But we'll we'll put a pin in that, you know, maybe when we're like, Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we have the internet. We can do this. We can make this happen. <laughs> You're right. I always forget about the internet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I would like to go back to the soundtrack, though, because yeah. you and I had a beautiful serendipitous moment when I told you 
like, oh yeah, like this one, I was like this one album by Natalia Kills is like so amazing to listen to while reading your book mm-hmm. and yeah, go, go for it. I want to hear about the soundtrack. Yeah. So you mentioned Natalia Kills uh, and like one of the tracks on that album, Problem, um, the album's not called Problem, the, the track is called Problem, um, I think it's called Problem, was uh, in the first initial playlist I made for the book. Um, and it was there because they played it in the store that I worked in that inspired Redacted. Um, so I, yeah, so I, um, I made a playlist of the tracks that were played in the store, um, that I liked and eventually I cut that down and then found other stuff that was similar, but a lot darker and sadder because the joke for me that like no one would ever get, but the joke for me was that it was a party store that played sad music. (laughs) <laughs> because that was the thing. It's the store that I worked in was supposed to be like this poppy, upbeat, um, fun, alternative culture store. And they would play like Ambling Alp by Yisair and like Thrash Unreal. Like they, they played Thrash Unreal. And like, because they, because it was a fun, high energy rock song. Thrash Unreal is a dark fucking song. Like it's really like, it's, you know, it's a really dark, really serious uh like alt alt rock punk rock song and um yeah so like eventually i i made the the soundtrack after the book had been like i think it was after clash got it um i went back and i i found all the musical references that i made and i also found some of the stuff that i didn't reference directly but like um the stuff that was in that playlist for the store and i like mushed the two together and i got like i think 10 tracks of stuff um the opening track is um downfall of us all by all day all the uh, not all that remains day to remember and um the last track is disparate youth by santa gold um yeah and then there's like a whole bunch of stuff there's a lot of kanye west there's like some kanye west there's some you know, Thrash Unreal is on there. So I, I made the whole thing. I can send it to you if you want. Um, I've shared it with yes. some people. Yes, I shared it with some people. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, it's like, it's just like, this is like what the, I, either this is what the characters are listening to, or this is what I think the mood of the scene was. Mm-hmm. Um, I, pop music is a big part of my writing process. Um, every book I listen, like when I write, I listen to pop music um, or indie rock or death metal or, um industrial i listen to stuff that's like i don't listen to classical or jazz um i know a lot of authors do and a lot of authors are very i think they are a little pretentious about it (laughs) about the fact like oh yes well i'm listening to charles mingus and it's kind of like or i'm listening to you know bach and i'm like all right you don't listen to bach i know you you listen to the rolling stones and zeppelin and like you listen to like dirty hip hop songs. Like I know you, you know, don't, don't, don't front. And like the music that I listen to is the same music that I write to. Um, and it's, yeah. And I mean, part of that is just lyrics, you know, I can write with lyrics. Some people can't. Um, but yeah, so that's the, that's, that's the relationship music has to the book. 
which again is such a cinematic quality to the writing process, which I do think is definitely apparent in the finished work. And you know, it's funny because as much as I'm definitely a self-professed uh, film snob, I <laughs> I have the guiltiest of guilty pleasures as far as music tastes go, like appallingly bad mm-hmm. bubblegum pop punk, <laughs> you know, to like super cheesy Broadway musicals. Like I even, mm-hmm. and this is like the most abhorred at all. I love country music even. So like, I do not judge at all. Like play yeah. whatever puts you in the fucking zone. You know, mm-hmm. I completely support that. <laughs> Good. Yeah. There's a country song on there too, on that soundtrack. Cause of course there is. Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've already uh, alluded a little bit to your process, you know, the writing process that you found with this becoming your MFA thesis. And I'm wondering how much those academic experiences actually informed your writing and if you'd recommend other writers to get an MFA. Oh, um, I don't know because, oh, I think it depends on the MFA and it depends on the writer. Um, I was a really good match for my, my first semester, my first class I ever take, I walk in, it was David Lipsky, um, cannot stress enough how much that helped that class helped. Um, I gelled with that man, like immediately, like I, he like walks into class and he's like clutching like a two liter of Mountain Dew and like a vape and his shirt's untucked. And he's just asking us, what have you been reading? What else have you been reading? Okay, what else have you been reading? And he's just like going around the room, like absolutely everything. And everyone else is reading like all this highbrow bullshit, like um, not bullshit, but you know, they're reading like, you know, we're <clears throat> bachelor students and I think everyone's trying to list the most impressive book. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I don't know. I've been reading like, I read a lot of Brady Stanellis. I don't know. Like, and he's like, oh yeah, I went to school with him. And I'm like, oh, there you go. Um, cool. <laughs> yeah, so it was like that kind of thing. And like, he was like, he wanted to take a smoke break and like, um, cause he smoked cigarettes and I smoked cigarettes and like we would smoke outside and talk. And like, so I had this really great experience in this one class and I had another class with Darren Strauss, also a really great experience. Um, not a smoker, not as manic, um, very, ch- actually very chill guy, but also like we did a lot of great stuff with like dialogue and editing. Um, my other classes, workshops included, I didn't hate them, but like, you know, I like Zadie Smith's writing a lot, like a lot, a lot. And I'm really like, look up to her and I didn't love her class because she just didn't, it just wasn't a fit, you know, like I got to do workshop with Jonathan Safran Foer, who said a lot of really profound things, but I don't know that he really got my work. Um, I got to do class with Joyce Carol Oates, who I think did get my work, but was also like, very like stern like she's a very stern woman um which is surprising because she's also very funny um and like you know so like i don't know like my workshops were hit or miss i had one i'm not going to name who it was i had one workshop that was a disaster um who gave me bad bad advice that i did not take like the, the the tense change in the book from present to past was her idea um you know, gave me just bad advice. Um, so yeah, so like I, I, I met some cool people, um, some of whom I'm still friends with, um, some of whom are good professional connections, um, made some good friends with professors who are good professional connections. Um, 
you know, some of my professors I really like as people, like Darren and I still talk, and um, I still try to keep in touch with David Lipsky, but he's busy as hell. Um, and like, you know, so I also didn't pay for it. Like, I was paid to take my MFA. So, you know, if you don't have to pay for it and you need time to write and you can find a good fit, then yes, go get an MFA. If all those things are not true, I would say don't do it. I would say like, because I learned so much of what I learned about writing, I learned after I graduated. Like it was a really great start, but so much of what I learned and I'm still learning so much was like going out and like reading my own books. Like I learned how to read books as a writer in the MFA. So I was equipped to go out there, pick up books, read them, learn from them, go from there. Um, you know, I happened to, like I said, gel really well with one of my professors who edited my book and who gave me, um, not gave me, but like, actually, yeah, gave me a novel and was like, this is what you're trying to do. Read this crib from it shamelessly. Don't be afraid to steal and make it work. And, um, that rewrite, I think turned the book around, um, and made it work. Um, so yeah. So like, I mean, the names were all different before I read that book. And then I read that book and I was like, ah, I need to change my names. Uh, the names aren't working. So like that stuff, like, you know, did I have a good experience on the whole? Sure. Um, was it, uh, a bit of a waste of time at times? Yes. Um, did it make my drug and alcohol addiction worse? Absolutely. Um, but like, you know, I think it's a really hit or miss thing to do and definitely do not get an MFA and think that an MFA equals publishing because even the people I know who have gotten great deals based on connections that they made in the program had to do years of work afterwards. Like, I don't know anyone personally, I don't personally know anyone who stepped out of the program with a deal. Like... I don't even know. I don't think I know anyone that stepped out of the program with an agent. I think that like they still had to do the query. They still had to do the rewrite. They still had to do the, the rewrite of the rewrite. They still had to do, get the publicist. Like it was a process, you know? And, and these are people who, again, like had Joyce Carol Oates as their advisor and they still, you know, their books are doing great now, but they still had to, go through like the process and like, you know, do all of that. So like, don't, you know, calibrate your expectations. If you're listening to this and you're wondering, um, calibrate your expectations and um, really ask yourself what you want to get out of it. And really ask yourself if you're willing to take two years just to write, because that's the best thing that it gives you is that it gives you two years just to write and write a lot. And yeah, so that's, that's, yeah, I think that that's the best way to explain it. I mean, that's a very honest appraisal, which is really appreciated because I'm a mature student in a creative writing BA and okay. I'm mulling over the potential. And I, I like what you really identified as saying, you know, the you really get into the minutia. And that's something I really, really want to do because I am, for the most part, self-taught, even as a, a professionally published author. But I'm just at this point where I've plateaued and I think I really need to go back, 
you know, I really do need to go become a little Padawan somewhere, you know, with people who know better and, and know what the truly, you know, professional realms are actually expecting from this. And like you said, you know, really being able to critically engage with other people's work, you know, and like you said, like you shouldn't, none of us should ever enter these institutions with the hope that they're going to be some kind of fast track. Cause it's honestly, like you said, it's the opposite. It actually is yeah. a real slog of effort, but as long as it you, is. yeah, as long as you truly love it. And like you say, as long as you take or leave advice as it makes sense to the development of your singular voice, I think that's the most critical thing. You need to go in there with an open heart and open mind, but a fucking spine. And when someone says go in this direction, you can just go, yeah, no, thanks. That's not actually where I meant to go. You know, upholding one's own integrity as an artist is hard enough, let alone when we're in a position of learning from other people. What I find is that there's two parts, in my opinion, to art and there's vision and craft. Vision cannot be taught. Craft can be taught. Mm-hmm. And you can create great work that is all vision or all craft. If you're trying to create a mixture of the two, it helps to get some craft knowledge. Um, but the vision is not going to be taught. Like the most the MFA will do is give you time to develop a vision. But like the actual vision itself, it's not going to be found in a class. It's going to be found between you and the page. Yeah, absolutely. I loved uh, in minor characters, and I feel so bad that it's a really perilous irony that I've now forgotten the name of that author, uh, but she was, you know, one of the adjacent, you know, lady beat writers. And she said that when she was in a writing class, uh, the professor asked, you know, who among you actually wants to, you know, become a published author? And she was among the few who raised her hand. And and the prof kind of chided them and, and said something to the effect of, oh, well, if you were a real author, you'd be out hopping boxcars and you wouldn't even be in this class kind of thing. Right, yeah. But I think what he was referencing was the vision work, you know, mm-hmm. that you do need to go out and live. But like you say, the craft can really be found in the classroom. And I'm wondering if that's what really called you to the opportunity of the MFA. Did you feel like you really just wanted to explore craft at that point? You know, I really was tired of working at Walmart. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. That was Mm -hmm. what did it. Um, I was tired of living in Indiana and working at a Walmart with my uh, ex-girlfriend. And I thought, you know, I need to get my shit together. So I'm going to move to New York and get an MFA Um, because that seems to be like the next step. And Mm -hmm. honestly, it was because an MFA means you get to teach. Did I realize that you need to publish a whole lot to teach? No, I did not. Um, but I get there and they're like, really, this is emphasis on publishing. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll just do that then. Um, so it was kind of handed to me. Um, it wasn't until I got into that class that I was really like, oh, I could be good at this. Like, not just like complete a degree, but I could be good at this. And that was really when I started to take it seriously. Um, so I'm a bit of a late bloomer in that sense. Like I don't, I didn't come into it the way that some of my peers did where they were like, I want to be the best writer that I can possibly be. And I've written all of this stuff and I've been published. I'd never been published before. And like, I want to be published. And I want to do all this, all this stuff and blah, 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 blah. And like, I was like kind of just coming into it with like, oh, I just want to teach, um, which I don't even want to teach anymore. Um, but like, damn, like 
the it it helped like in spite of it like it definitely helped with the craft um if you are going in looking for craft more power to you i think i think that that means that you have a better idea than i did going into it yeah i can definitely relate largely to the uh the late bloomer idea because on the one hand this has always been in me you know this urge to storytell from a very very young age so in a sense i was you know, a little, <laughs> a little rushed with it. But at the same time, almost because it came onto me so soon, I did take such a, such a circuitous route. And it just kind of got to this point of frustration. And I feel like you expressed a similar frustration, you know, with your economic status and, you know, the sucky day jobs that writers so often, mm-hmm. you know, have to pursue to subsist. And, and for me too, it was also just this feeling of like, I can no longer keep rereading the elements of style. Like I need more, I need more guidance. I need more mentorship. And it's true that we don't, we don't always find what we're looking for with any path we take. But as you mentioned, we still find something and it's usually something of value. Very true. This has been so awesome and <laughs> I would love to just keep talking and talking, but we're already actually kind of getting closer to the end. Um, and one thing that you mentioned in the info that you sent me uh, was that what drives you is, quote, a pathological need to be heard. And I'm wondering, what do you think of as pathological about the need to be heard? I for a while was willing to prioritize a lot of things over um, or to deprioritize a lot of things for the sake of being heard. I was willing to mortgage my health, my economic status, my relationships, my family status, my um, sexual well-being, my um, self-actualization, a lot of things under the auspices of I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to be heard. And I was really willing to do that. Um, And that meant alcohol and drug use, um, alcohol and drug abuse. It meant poverty. It meant a low quality of life, a low standard of living, damaged relationships, all kinds of nasty stuff. I didn't. And the, the thing was that, it was um, counterintuitive because it turned out that the more self-actualized I was, the more economically comfortable I was, the more um, my, the better my mental health and the more sober I was, especially the more sober I was, the higher the quality of writing was. Mm -hmm. So it was this very backwards thing. Now the pathological need remains in the sense that it is like, a hunger and it is a absolute like it is a need in the same sense that like people need shelter you know like it's a basic need for me in the same sense of those kinds of needs maybe it's a little bit higher and up in the hierarchy but not by much and that's still there the difference is the fact that like it's something that i have to recognize as being possibly sickening as being something that can make me sick. So I need to make sure that I'm maintaining my wellness otherwise. 
otherwise, or, or else I will fall back into what I would describe as the glamorous suffering of a writer, where you're living in a garret or your version of a garret and you're pumping out pages and they're not very good, <laughs> but you have a bottle of whiskey and you have a pack of cigarettes and a computer and you're going to just hack out as much as you possibly can. And it's shit. And like, you think that you're doing great work or at least for me, I think I'm doing great work and it's shit, but I don't need that. What I need is I need a day job. I need a partner. I need friends. I need support groups. I need a therapist. I need three square meals a day. You know, I need to folk. I need those things more than I need for my health that I need to be heard. And I will not be heard unless I have those things. That's what makes it pathological for me. Oh my gosh. I, I regret leaving that question for near the end because I feel like that's a whole other podcast (laughs) that just potentially opened up there. I, I so readily concur. It's that life work balance, which is, I think so much more difficult to attain for people who are passionate about their art. And as you said, who really, really want to get it out there and make some kind of impact with it. You know, and it reminds me of, a, you know, the Hamilton musical, that one song nonstop, you know, the whole like, why do you write like you're running out of time? Why do you write like you need it to survive? Like when I was watching that with my parents, my mom turned to me and was like, oh, that sounds like someone. <laughs> but but I, I think we all need to try to remind ourselves, like, like you said, if we're pr- taking proper care of ourselves, we do have time. Obviously, we're all running out of time. We're all mortal. But if we pace ourselves and mm-hmm. have that balance that you so beautifully described, then we'll have more time and we can take our time and actually enjoy the process instead of, yeah, turning ourselves into these kind of twisted ambition addled machines Mm -hmm. that's a lovely way to put it twisted ambition addled machines um Mm -hmm. yeah i've you know i have hobbies now i never thought i'd be a person with hobbies i have hobbies you know i have i make art that i'm not trying to make like where i don't like i make music i'm not concerned about getting a major deal i'm i've had people on labels approach me and be like hey do you want to like put out on my little put a tape out on my label and I'm like, Oh sure. Some point. But like, I'm not trying to be the next, like my publisher, Philip best. Like I'm not trying to be that. I'm not trying to, I, I am not, I'm not even trying to be as big as um, my, like uh, uh, Christoph with clash, like Dionysus effect, like his band is, is doing pretty good. And I'm like, I don't even want to get that far. I just want to like sell five tapes, you know, like that's, mm-hmm. that's all I want to do with that. And that's like, you know, that's a hobby. I have other, um hobbies that I'm a little little personal that I don't really want to share but like I'm you know I never would have thought that I would be that into those kinds of things and like I have you know other interests I go to meetings I like you know and I hang out with people and I have I make a point of like having like friend dates you know like I do these things that like I never would have thought of doing whereas before it was like my idea of socialization was like, maybe I'll go to the bar and then I'll go to the library or I'll go to the library and then I'll go to the bar and that's it. And like anything beyond that, like, you know, I'll stuff as much cocaine up my nose and drink as much alcohol as I can. But like, besides that, I'm not going to like 
do stuff. And now I'm like, no, I'm going to go to, I'm going to move back to New York and start going to museums again, you know, cause I like going to museums. Like, you know, it's a different lifestyle and it's, um, yeah, I, I, I encourage anyone who is single minded, uh, to get a fucking job, <laughs> I hate to be like that. Um, but like anyone who's like really single minded about it, I encourage them to like, get us, get us a regular job and, you know, uh, make a friend, um, drink a little less and, um, get coffee with your buddy and just talk about stuff that isn't writing and just do that. And you're like, it's your quality of life will go up and you're, you'll be so fine that when you sit down in front of the computer, like there's, you have too many ideas and there's too much stuff. And like your writer's block is not going to be as bad as it was because, Hey, guess what? You've been away from the keyboard all this time, you know? So Exactly. And I think that's the proper reverence to bring into our art anyway, because of course art is supposed to be life-giving. And yet when we become too obsessed with it, that's just the road to self-destruction, which isn't what Mm -hmm. our muse actually wants, you know? No. And it's interesting. You mentioned muse a couple of times and like, I've not had a lot of muses, um, but like, I don't know, like I, I do have like, I, I do have a God of my own understanding and I, I, and I, I think that my God wants me to, or goddess wants me to keep writing. And like, mm-hmm. that means doing a lot of other things. Exactly. Like my goddess wants me to do a lot of other things in addition to writing. And that's, yeah. Exactly. Cause our, our personal gods just want us to be creative beings and to live this beautiful gift out that we've been given. I totally exactly. concur. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been amazing. I do have to wrap it up very sadly uh, with much regret, but (laughs) first of all, not first of all, finally of all, uh, when will listeners be able to purchase The Longest Summer? Okay. um, It's set for summer of 2023. We're tentatively saying June, but Mm -hmm. follow me on Twitter at cross underscore radical. Uh, follow Clash Books at Clash Books. Um, you can use ins- you can find me on Instagram or Twitter um, under cross underscore radical. You can find Clash Books on Instagram or Twitter. Pay attention; they got a lot of great books coming out. It's not just my stuff; they got some wild shit coming out. Um, but if you're looking for my stuff, um, next summer uh, is going to be the longest summer. Perfect. Looking forward to it. And thank you so much for being here. This was just amazing getting to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me. This was a, I had a blast. It was a joy. I really, I really had a good time. Thank you. Mutual. Take care. Thanks. All right. That was Alexandrin Ogundimu. Keep an eye out for the longest summer and check out her website, ajogundimu.com. This is C.E. Hoffman and you're listening to Scribbles and Spills. Remember to subscribe to us on Spotify and follow us on our Twitter at ScribSpillPod. Stay creative.